0: We gotta set the standards for a much bigger industry going forward because Ford Motor Company was public. Stainless steel, you know, U.S. Steel was public. Big, heavy, capital-intensive businesses were public. Why shouldn't real estate be public? Why shouldn't there be liquidity? And liquidity equals value.
1: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is an in-memoriam to Sam Zell, a giant, one of the most giants in the real estate business, who passed away on Thursday, May 18th. I sat down with Sam for this conversation in the conference room of his office at 2 North Riverside Plaza in Chicago, along with an audience of a dozen ULI young leaders back in September of 2017. We had our conversation shortly after the release of his autobiography, Am I being too subtle? Straight talk from a business rebel. Sam leaves a tremendous legacy, and you all have access to many, many obituaries that have already swamped your inboxes. I'll give you my headlines. Sam's most important contribution to our business was his embracing the REIT model for several of his businesses, and then becoming the REIT world's biggest advocate, tirelessly promoting and helping mainstream REITs into the public capital markets. Second, he created and led several REITs that led their respective sectors, in particular equity residential and equity office. Companies that were both at the forefront of the thesis that scale would help institutionalize a business that had to that point been largely a business of collecting separately structured and incentivized partnerships. These two points, institutionalization both of capital and operating platform, as our listeners know, is an ongoing theme of this podcast. If you had to put that transformation of the business on one person, that would absolutely be Sam. Huge contribution. And by the way, check out the Leading Voices interview with the current CEO of Equity Residential, Mark Perel, back in July of last year. We also cannot miss the Sam persona, which is how he might largely be remembered. Sam was a frequent, outspoken, hilarious, controversial, brilliant speaker whose gravel voice, blue jeans, and F-bombs are legendary. He was a frequent industry speaker as well as popular culture talking head. I heard him most recently only about three weeks ago at the Berkeley Fisher Center for Real Estate Conference at Pebble Beach. As always, he just spoke his mind and spoke his truth. I had the privilege first of working with Sam on a search years ago for the CEO of one of his portfolio companies and then doing this interview in his office back in 2016. Many of the things we do today in the real estate business we do because of the trailblaze by Sam Zell. Thank you, Sam. If you have comments, questions, or would like to get in touch about our work on the human capital side of the real estate business at ZRG Partners, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. This is definitely one of those episodes to share with a friend. Please enjoy this revisit of our conversation of Sam Zell, who passed away last week. Today we're talking to Sam Zell, a man who needs no introduction in the real estate business. So I think we're just going to dive in on the conversation. I did get to read your book on the airplane last night. I'd started it before, and as I described to these guys Some books, you kind of push against the wall to read it. You have to get through it, and it's a little bit of a drag. And this was like a warm knife through butter. It was fun. It was enjoyable. And since I know you a tiny bit and I know all about your world, it was just a total pleasure to read this. Thank you. And maybe start with a quote from the book. And this kind of starts at the end, but we'll start it at the beginning, that you say, and you've said frequently, the definition of an idiot is someone who's reached his goals, And I'm also reminded of this song from Hamilton, He Cannot Be Satisfied. And here we are, you have had a wonderful career. Talk about what that means to you.
0: Well, it's like a lot of people ask me, you know, when I'm gonna retire. And uh, I answer them by saying that, retire from what? You know, I really, I worked four days in my life for somebody else. If I had to define work, uh, I would limit it to those four days. And the rest of the time, I've been chasing ideas and uh, testing my limits. And my comment there is very much a reflection of the fact that I believe you got to constantly test your limits. And the day you stop testing your limits, the day you say, I'm satisfied, or I've reached my goals, that's a pretty sad day. And it's a pretty limiting definition of who you are. So what I've tried to do for myself, for those that I hope to inspire, I try to reinforce for them the importance of constantly readjusting their goals, never getting too close to success. The real thrill is climbing the ladder, not sitting at the top.
1: You're at the top. So how does that change over your career, over your lifetime? And in your 70s, how do those goals change
0: over time? Well, I think that you're probably less tolerant to, you know, repetition. I think you tend to generate and create objectives and goals that are perhaps not, you know, easily defined. I'm not going to make a million dollars. But, you know, I started 20-some-odd years ago with the modern read era, Mm -hmm. and I felt that there was an extraordinary opportunity to do something. And so I was very involved in that process, and very supportive of the whole industry and everybody else, and um, and take great pride in the fact that we've achieved the objective. But the fact that we've achieved the definition of achieving the objective is to create sufficient scale so that the real estate industry basically becomes liquid, and. March of 09, we had an opportunity to test that thesis, which was that there's always liquidity, it's just a question of price. And we proved that to be the case. And I think that's wonderful, but that's just another step on the way toward evolving a sophisticated real estate industry.
1: We'll come back to the modern reader as we talk on our conversation, but maybe let's start at the beginning of the conversation. So can never be satisfied, but then let's talk about your upbringing. And your family was on the last train out of Poland as Hitler invaded.
0: They were on, my dad was on the last train at 4.30 in the afternoon on August 31st, 1939, going east. And the Luftwaffe bombed the rail yards with the start of World War II on September 1st.
1: Unbelievable. Yep. So he came in with guts to uproot his family, also went East, not
0: West. Could you have, was there West to go? There was no place West. (laughs) West West wasn't an option at that stage. So the only option was East. As opposed to many others, once he began the process, he was never going to stop short of getting to America. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of times, you know, when my mother described saying, all right, enough, you know, I mean, we're a thousand miles from the front or whatever. And he just was determined that, you know, the future was America, and that's where he had to come to.
1: And America was the goal, so when you got to Japan, or when he got to Japan, that wasn't a, going to be a long-term way station for first, no. first Japanese Jews or something like well, that. Well,
0: the reality is that there were a lot of Jewish refugees mm-hmm. in Tokyo, Right. In 1940 and the early parts of 41. And most of them were trying to get visas to the United States. As a result, the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo was a mess. He basically concluded that what he needed to do was go to Kobe, which was not too far away, where there was another embassy where nobody was there. Keep going. Right. Yeah. It kind of follows the thesis of my book, which is competition is great for other people. (laughs) But when you want to get something done, the less competition you have, the better. And that's how he got out. And most of the rest of the refugees ended up spending the war in Shanghai, Mm -hmm. which is where the Japanese deported them to.
1: Let's drill down on it a little bit because there's Some folks who came out of the crucible of the Holocaust, either first generation or second generation, had tremendous, unbelievable success. My father-in-law escaped. He hid in an attic during the war. So he was the successful Anne Frank, I guess. But it broke him in some ways. It was really hard. He never kind of recovered from that. But for you, it was a big driver.
0: Well, I mean, I was born in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, 90 days after my parents came here. So for me, it was growing up in a truly uh, immigrant's household. An immigrant that maybe is different than today's immigrant, I don't know. But his attitude was that he was the luckiest guy in the world. That he had gotten this extraordinary opportunity to come to the United States and start over again to benefit from the enormous land of opportunity. He used to refer to it, you know, as the streets are paved with gold from his perspective. And he therefore influenced me. There was just an enormous appreciation for the American people, the American system, Mm -hmm. how lucky we were to be able to recreate our lives in this environment. And he drove pretty hard. One of your comments was,
1: "He didn't make anything easier or softer." It's, and it's yeah, it's, that wasn't.
0: You know, he. I mean, let's let's you know, let's face the reality that at age thirty-four, he had to make a life-and-death decision. Mm-hmm. He had a wife, a two-year-old daughter. Had you know a very significant number of aunts and uncles and brothers and, you know, huge huge, happened to be a huge family. One of the reasons that he was on that last train was he moved my mother and my sister, came back, and tried to convince other members of the family to go with him, and nobody was willing to go, which basically, you know, connects to my overall feeling that, you know, Immigration is what this country is built on. Uh, it's Immigration is also very self-selective. And you know, I used to kid about my father and well, say sir. he made a life and death decision when he was 34 mm-hmm. and never was wrong again. <laughs> uh, which contributed to our uh, somewhat stormy but challenging relationship.
1: So while you're still at home, you became an entrepreneur because you discovered Playboy magazine and maybe you discovered scarcity and discovered how to...
0: At the time, I think I called it naked women. Uh, (laughs) Later on, when I was describing the situation with more sophistication, it was much easier to decide that I had recognized an unfulfilled part of the market I also recognized where there was innate demand. I recognized the fact that artificial government regulation had prohibited the magazine from being sold uh, where I lived, but was available below the train tracks. So uh, you could say that I converted what was pretty instinctual when it started, i.e., gee, I bought this thing, I liked it, I read it, and then I showed it to a friend of mine, and he said, wow, how do I get one of those? And so uh, we began a business. And then you made some dough. Yeah. It, it's
1: interesting. In, in retrospect and in hindsight, everything had logic and thought to it, but this is instinctual. then. Well, You're not totally. thinking arbitrage, right? No, no, no. <laughs>
0: I mean, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, the only... The only part that's probably worth mentioning is that I remember sitting there thinking about what the margin should be. It cost 50 cents. I ended up coming up with three bucks. And I'm not sure why. And I I tried to find maybe a point of indifference. You know, Mm -hmm. how much in, in absolute terms could I get and still make it not a major event, for someone to participate. I also probably figured that if I got one guy to buy, I'm going to get a lot of guys to buy. And if I got one guy to set the price and he was happy with it, that was kind of a validation that was going to make the business work.
1: Uh, there, there you go. Well, you didn't check the price then. Okay, So you continued,
0: continue, even though demand was unlimited.
1: hmm I'll buy that. So then the next... Step in your entrepreneurial career, you're freshman, sophomore at University of Michigan, guy next door to you, or the property next door gets sold, someone develops an apartment building, and you sell
0: yourself as his advisor. Um, close enough. Yeah, so talk about mine that. The was that, um, you know, this friend of mine was living in a house, and the guy who owned the house bought the house next door, and he was going to, as soon as school was over, was going to knock it down. I am build a 15-unit apartment building. And I said to my friend, I said, geez, you know, we're students. We understand what students need and want. Why don't we go pitch them that we'll uh, take over renting the place and managing it and taking care of it, and we'll each get a free apartment. And so we put there a little brochure, and we went to see these guys, and uh, much to probably our own shock, Uh, They bought our act. And so uh, we ended up what we thought was going to be an advisory function. We basically, uh, they just abdicated everything to us. And they concentrated on getting it built. One was an architect, you know, in the financing. And, you know, we did all the furniture. We did all the leasing. We wrote the leases. And then we both moved in. And ran the building, and we were very successful. And so then we got another building, and another building, and another building. And so by the time I graduated from law school, we had a pretty significant business, and Mm -hmm. we had bought a bunch of buildings. Mm -hmm.
1: And it started right there, the audacity of this kid saying, I'll I'll help you.
0: Well, let's assume that uh, the word audacity is yours. I didn't think it was audacious. I didn't think it was out of line. I thought it was pretty logical. I thought if I were sitting on the other side, I would probably buy my act. And so, but that's really, you know, a critical part of the whole story. You know, years later, uh, Lurie and I were here in Chicago and uh, we had president of the bank... That, Come for lunch, and um, he looked at us and he said, "It's unbelievable what you guys have accomplished. Uh, How did you do it? You know who told you how to do it?" And um, Bob and I looked at each other, and I looked at the guy, and I said, "Nobody ever told us we couldn't. Yeah, nobody ever." said, gee, that's crazy. So when we pitched these guys building this building, we didn't think it was audacious. We didn't think it was crazy. We thought that they were getting two guys who were going to spend, you know, all of their free time making sure that this thing worked. And it, by the way, did.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's a combination of you described, you said this twice, they, they bought my act. Yeah. And it was one of my, the last questions I was going to ask you about that because there is a, a Zell brand, there's a Zell persona. The The world knows something about you. That's a big part of this. There's a salesmanship to this, and you talk about that through your book as well.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, there's one section, I think, in the book where I talk about the great disservice that the University of Michigan did to the world, and that is they educated Arthur Miller. Mm-hmm. And Arthur Miller, of course, wrote Death of a Salesman. Right. In which he depicted a salesman as this grubby, womanizing, drunken, horrible person, you know, with his his shirt hanging out. And he was just the, you know, everything you could imagine that you would be, you know, not attracted to. The reality is that there's no such thing as anything without salesmanship. True. No great idea. Whoever made up that great lie, you know, invent something and the world will come to your feet. Not true. You got to go out and sell it. And when it's all said and done, the truly successful people have been the people who've been able to sell their ideas. And in some cases, uh, unpredictable kind of problem, like Bill Gates, hardly a salesman, but he had a level of specialization and a level of understanding that allowed him to create a new part to our world. And there have been many, many other examples of people that were just great salesmen. Fred Smith, who created FedEx, you know, Zuckerberg. When it's all said and done, they're all great salesmen. But it's a component
1: because the other components are you have an idea you can execute really well. How about it's a
0: condition precedent?
1: That's a fair deal. That's a fair deal. It all has to exist, though. Sure. Can't exist exist without, and you've talked through your book about integrity. Sure. Relationships, not retrading, right? You want to do business with people twice. Those are part and parcel of the holistic part of that. Amen. Yeah, won't happen otherwise. (laughs) So... You've talked about people through your book and some really key relationships. At, tell us about Bob Lurie and how you complemented each other and how you had so, some of the same characteristics and then some Yeah,
0: Bob uh, and I both uh, pledged the same fraternity at the University of Michigan at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's how we met. We probably couldn't have come from different backgrounds His father died when he was very young. He worked his way through high school, college. He was from Detroit. I was an immigrant's kid. I started the real estate business. And Bob came to me one night and said, you know, what you're doing is really interesting. I'd be interested in participating. I said, well, if we had a chance to expand, I'll call you. He was our first employee. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, when we sold the business, uh, before coming back to Chicago, I sold the business to him. And, um, you know, the, the kind of last quote was, When you get tired of uh, screwing around and you want to come play with the big boys, call me. <laughs> now, obviously, that was, uh, you know, somewhat you, hub- hubristic in nature, and it was kind of a sense of arrogance that it kind of never dawned on me that I wouldn't be successful. didn't even dawn on me. Um, So when he called three years later, he said, you remember the last thing you said to me? And I said, yes. And he said, I'm ready. I said, fine, come on. And he came to Chicago, and we built our relationship and built the business. Mm -hmm.
1: And how did, what did he bring that you didn't have?
0: Oh, he was uh, a mechanical engineer. You know, I was the salesman, the guy who operated from the gut, the rainmaker, and Lurie would stay up all night until the two columns balanced. Mm -hmm. He read every single document. I mean, uh, and you know, we have one great story about we were completing some very elaborate transaction and ended up with like three or four books of documents. And he was reading the documents, and uh, he made a change in one of the documents, which basically said that in the event of a dispute, the uh-huh. taller person survives. <laughs> and he did that because he said, you know, I'm really curious if anybody will ever catch it. And it's been... Uh, 40 years? Nobody's caught it yet.
1: Yes. And, and there was another one in the book where the documents came out and the interest rate was like an eighth of a point or a quarter point below. Oh, you just shake and yeah. hands, on. Tell that story because that tells more about morals and values and how you do business. I found that fascinating.
0: Well, I mean, I think the, the answer is that you, you got to start with, with the assumption on our part that we were going to be very successful. Kind of, as I said a minute ago, kind of didn't dawn on us. So if you have
1: that assumption, then long-term matters and and long-term relationship matters. And
0: the second issue is that if you're going to be successful, you're going to be a consumer of capital. If you're going to be a consumer of capital, then it's not one transaction, but it's a flow of transactions. When a scenario where eventually your providers of capital make decisions predicated on who you are, and the and the standards you set. So, over many years, uh, whether it was uh, you know, I think in the book I talked about us doing some kind of a convertible debt offering, and we get to the end of the you know the ten day roadshow, and the guy uh, from Merrill Lynch, you know, looks at me and says. You know, in a very formalistic manner, you know, we're prepared to buy $300 million worth of your debt, you know, da, 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 uh, at 6.5%. I looked at the guy and I said, good. I said, uh, would you also be willing to buy at six and three quarters? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, but we said, you know, 65 I said, I understand that. I said, I just wanted to know whether the market was there at a quarter of a point higher. And he said, well, of course. And I said, well, then let's do it at six and three quarters. And, you know, and he, by the way, kept talking about that for another 10 years because nobody had ever done that before. There was nothing very uh, esoteric about it. I thought about it. I said, the total cost to me was, I don't know, a million bucks on a deal. Uh, For a million dollars, everybody who bought that transaction that day had a profit the next morning. Because for me, it was a relatively small cost. But for them, it was a big deal. And because I knew I was coming back for more, creating that kind of goodwill could only translate into positive things in the future.
1: In your book, you talk about a couple of other relationships kept coming up, and the one that came up very frequently was Jay Pritzker. And somehow you, you were introduced to him. At, he was trying to hire you. You yeah. said no, but then you did a whole lot of business, yep. and he was there for you. Yep. So talk about what that relationship, how, how that, how you got in and how it worked, and then what he meant to you.
0: Well, somebody, I mean, he was obviously you know, famous before I came along, and I had heard of him, uh, but I had never met him. And I was 29, and this friend called me and said, you know, I was with Jay yesterday, and you really ought to go meet him. Uh, he's trying to hire a, a young lawyer, mm-hmm. successful entrepreneur under 30. I said, if I met all those characteristics, why would I want to work for him or anybody else? <laughs> he says, come on, go meet him. So went and meet, met him the next morning, and there was a real uh, instant connectivity. And we ended up, I ended up spending the whole day there, just sitting at his desk, and he fielded phone calls and was doing deals, and I just sat and listened. And each time he was done, we talked about him, and finally, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he said, you know, you're not going to come work for me. I said, no, I'm not. I said, so why don't we just do a deal together? And we did. And we did a whole bunch of transactions over uh, probably a 20-year period. Uh, he was probably the smartest guy I ever met. I was very proud of uh, being able to sit at his feet and listen. I learned a great deal. And there's no question that he very, very significantly influenced how and I did business and in you know, ways I chose to act accordingly. third person I just chose, and this is not the most important person in
1: the book, but There was a guy named Peter, I'm gonna say his name Zelosi. Zelosi. So you have a lot of loyalty and a lot of long term relationships and a lot of fun in your business. Yes. So talk about Peter. How did he fit into this?
0: Well, Peter was really crazy. Uh huh. I mean, really crazy. Really crazy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the the issues with Peter were always, you know, reining him in. I mean, there's no such thing as limits. Uh You know, I talk about testing my limits. He didn't have any. And he was extraordinarily creative. What did he do for you? What was his role? Well, I met him originally on a motorcycle trip in in Colorado. And he had run his own advertising agency, which he bankrupted because he was for sure not a businessman. Uh And we started talking and I said, well, why don't you come to Chicago? And uh, I run a big business and we do a lot of fun stuff and you can be our... uh, you know, Director of fun, and uh, so he came to chicago and uh, and you know we began doing u uh, n gifts and parties and all kinds of stuff and Peter basically designed most of that stuff and you know you talked earlier about a brand. I never really thought about branding, but I think Peter did, and I think Peter was someone who worried about our brand all the time. At the same time, stretched it to have people have fun. You know, I kind of hit under a rock until about 1985 when I started getting involved in public companies. And the Wall Street Journal interviewed me for a front page article in uh, November of 1985. And so I sat with this lady and we talked and we talked about culture and ideas and the way we were running our business. And I said, you know, it's kind of real simple. If it ain't fun, we don't do it. And uh, then the article came out and it said, you know, if it ain't fun, we don't do it. And the next day the office boys at this office Came to work wearing t shirts that said, if it ain't fun, we don't do it.
1: <laughs> so you're famous in the industry in the world for wearing blue jeans, which we're there today, which is good news. Sure. So the listeners know that. But your book talked about jumpsuits. Yes. I don't know what a jumpsuit is, and I think it talked about wearing a yellow jumpsuit to a meeting. So Yeah, it was red. Red jumpsuit.
0: Yeah. yeah. what? It, what is a jumpsuit? Well, it's kind of a one-piece uh, polyester. Just like what you think it is for a yeah, guy. Yeah. Well, it, uh, you could call it gruesome. It wasn't gruesome. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it's very simple. If you're really good at what you do and you dress funny, then you're eccentric. You're eccentric. It's cool. If you're not so good at what you do, Schmuck. And dress <laughs> schmuck. So our whole goal was freedom, you know, and Lurie, by the way, wore the exact same thing to work every single day. Work boots, Levi's 501 plaid shirt. Every single day. As a matter of fact, about seven or eight years before he died, He, as as he was wont to do, he started worrying about the fact that maybe these manufacturers would stop making them. And so he went and bought, you know, 10 years' supply (laughs) of each of the three things that he wore every day. I
1: love it. Uh, I had the chance this morning, I walked by Millennium Park, and I saw the Lurie Gardens. Yes. uh, Thinking of you, of course, because of today, but really interesting. So upon that is built an empire. And so I want to talk about two things concurrently. Um, One is kind of are the companies that you've built that have lasted, and then two is the modern REIT era, and and they go hand in hand. And so talk about how going public became the answer for you and how it became the future for those businesses.
0: Well, I think that I was very fortunate in that although I was building – a major real estate empire, back in 1980, Luria and I sat down and talked about it, and we didn't like the commercial real estate market. And we thought that our success was very much a function of the fact that we were good businessmen. Real estate happened to be the the discipline, but our success or failure were ultimately going to be on whether or not we were good businessmen whether we understood supply and demand and market share and all the other elements of what business is. And so in 1980, we said, you know, what we really should do is we should diversify. And between 1980 and 1990, we ought to go from 100% real estate to 50-50. And that's what we did. In the process, because we were doing non-real estate, we ended up involved in the public markets and we learned how money was raised, was where it was raised, how the public markets worked, uh, what the expectations were, et cetera. So when the end of the eighties came and the real estate world was bereft of capital, you know, the insurance companies were gone, the banks were gone, pension funds weren't there. There was no money. And yet, it's a very capital-intensive industry. The obvious only last resort was the public markets. And I was fortunate in that I had already had 10 years of public market experience. So, whereas most of the other people in the real estate world had to really understand what it meant to be public, I had already been to the movie. I mean, (laughs) I gave a speech in October of 1993 to narrate in which I laid out the future of REITs and the future of the business. And I started by talking about driving around in 1984 and seeing a bumper sticker in Houston that said, please, God, give us one more oil boom. We won't screw it up this time. (laughs) Well, my message to the real estate industry is the same we had basically trashed the public markets. That's because the private markets were so much more attractive. So by the time it got to the public markets, as opposed to the original intent of the REIT Act in 1958, was for Ma and Pa to have an opportunity to buy corporate real estate, it became the home of secondary real estate, secondary real estate players, until 1991, too when there was no secondary anything and the public markets became the only ones. And they called for accountability, predictability, and transparency. They called for continuity, not one-time gains. They called for a level of connectivity with their investor base that most of these guys had never had any experience with. And in fact, thought it was an intrusion. But the reality is, From day one, my view of it was, they're giving me capital. If they're giving me capital, then I made a deal with the devil. And I have to respond to and be sensitive to their needs going forward. And then
1: this worked for your companies. So you started the largest department read, manufactured housing, mobile home, office, and then also, you were doing this on behalf of the industry. So it's yeah. helping your guys, but you're also helping
0: the industry as yeah. a leader. I was uh, head of NAIRIT. I was the head of the trustees for 94 and 5, but right in the critical part of yes. taking Because, see, NAIRIT before the modern Reed era was a very small, very limited group of guys whose sole goal was, preserve the 1958 law, nothing else mattered. I took it and said, this is the future of the real estate business. This is liquid real estate. We got to do this right. We got to set the standards for a much bigger industry going forward because there's no reason that Ford Motor Company was public. Stainless steel, you know, US Steel was public big, heavy, capital-intensive businesses were public, why shouldn't real estate be public? Why shouldn't there be liquidity? Liquidity equals value. Huge deal.
1: So in some ways, you led, drag the industry along with you. You you, you knew what the public markets were like. You knew what the behaviors had to be.
0: I, I think drag might be too strong a word. You know, going back to being a salesman, I understood what had to be done. And I did my damnedest to sell everybody on how important it was, both verbally and by example.
1: Good work. The other thing that happened is, so you've you talked about liquidity being the driver here, but the other driver is size and scale and efficiency. And I've watched it through my real estate career. The world has transformed into these large, large, large behemoth organizations that both have size, scale, technology, liquidity all at the same time. And that thesis has proven out incredibly well for EQR. Sure. I think the thesis of efficiency was less translated into the office world than it was into the apartment world, but you may have some thoughts about that. Well, I think that, you know,
0: let's begin with the real estate industry was historically a private industry. It was limited in size by virtue of its private nature and by the fact that, Generations died, etc. We basically, by creating the modern era, began the process of creating companies that span multiple family generations. And you know, AQR is forty-some odd billion-dollar enterprise value. Simon Properties is double that. You know, you get these very large companies without public capital never could have been built. But by virtue of taking public capital, they are different than the classic real estate models. Mm-hmm. And
1: talk about being—you said you're said I'm chairman of everything, COO of CEO of nothing. So what's it like to be the chairman of organizations like this that have a third, 25, 30-year lifespan? So far. Yeah. So far. That's right. So
0: far. But they really have lifespans of perpetuity. I think they do by virtue of their creation yes. and the way they run. I say that because I'm not a detail guy. You asked me before about Lurie and the beauty of Lurie was he was a detail guy and I was a big picture guy. Being chairman of these companies is both rewarding and I can make a difference, but I wouldn't be making the difference and I wouldn't be successful unless there was somebody in each of those companies or a number of people we're running those companies on a daily basis. And that's just not who I am.
1: Talk about how you make a difference now with a company that's, I don't know how old, these 25 years, let's say that number, mature company that will exist in perpetuity versus a company that you're c- pulling into creation, big M&A in the past, maybe in the future. But talk about just well, where you it, add the most
0: value there. You know, today, the five companies that, are currently, uh, you know, traded in the New York Stock Exchange, that I'm chairman, within the course of a two-week period, I will interface with the leadership of all those companies, mostly in person. Uh, they'll come talk to me about direction, about interest rates, about leverage, about how I see things. I'll s- communicate to them where I see things and how I see things changing. Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm constantly both asking them to take me on and taking them on because it's creating that stress that ultimately produces exceptionalism.
1: And maybe that stress that creates exceptionalism is always asking hard questions together, not not hierarchical conversations, not hierarchical organizations. Kind of play with that a little bit.
0: Well, but I mean, you know, I talk in the book about you know, the 11th commandment, thou shalt not take one so seriously. I have, you mentioned earlier about the fact that, you know, we have a, a bunch of people working for the equity group who've been here forever. And I tell people when I hire them, I tell them that, you know, there's one problem once you work here, it's going to be very tough working anywhere else. And that's proven to be the case. And it's proven to be the case because this is an open environment this is an environment where the office door to my or the door to my office is always open. People come in and challenge me or raise questions and want answers. And us, the, the environment we create is an environment of the enemy is without. We have a group of people here. They all should be treated as people. This is not a a grind them up factory. I want to be proud of everybody who works here, and I want to be proud of the environment I've created.
1: It's funny, people on the outside know you as someone who speaks a lot and has a lot to say. Your book talks a lot about being a good listener and being a pretty private person. So talk about that a little bit.
0: Well... um, And being curious. Yeah, I mean, you know, those are what I would call entrepreneurial characteristics, you know, we don't all don't know what an entrepreneur really is. Is entrepreneurship a science? Is it an art? We don't know the answer to that. But we've learned a lot over the years by studying it, and I've financed the study of entrepreneurship in various places. And you come up with things like entrepreneurs are energetic, entrepreneurs are self-confident, Entrepreneurs are curious. Entrepreneurs not only see problems, but see solutions. That's, you know, those are the characteristics because these people are leading and they're often leading without a playbook. It's very easy to direct if you're sitting there with the music laid out in front of you. It's much harder if you have to write the music while you're talking. And that's what an entrepreneur does. An entrepreneur writes the music while he's telling everybody how they should play their instrument.
1: And like you were in college, never having done it before, but being willing to stand in the breach and go for it. Sure. Talk about risk and trends. So risk, because your book talks a lot about risk taking and how to have the confidence and know what that is and how to mitigate that. And then the other is do something going into where the trends are taking
0: the world? Well, I think that the word risk is probably the least defined term, mm-hmm. a least really studied term, and it's a shame that that's the case. I've always believed that risk is an element that one must control. kind of starts with uh, Bernard Baruch's famous comment in 1929, which was nobody ever went broke taking a profit. So if you start with that assumption, then it's pretty easy to assume that if it gets too good, you'll survive. The problem with risk is all about understanding how much of it you're taking, what's the likelihood of it of it occurring, how well equipped are you to deal with it, and uh, and have you built the base that can handle the risk? As far as I'm concerned, the definition of the best deals I've ever done are those in which my estimate of the risk I was taking proved to be correct. And the closer I was able to predict the risk, the better I did, even though the results of it in some cases were fabulous, some cases were not. Yeah, you said
1: in the book that one deal, some of the deals you were most proud of were deals that did lose money, but it, yeah. but you knew what the risks were going. But I
0: knew, I knew what the risk was. You know, I knew going in that if I did this deal, I was running the risk, and the question was how big was the risk? And in one of the cases in that book, I talk about the fact that we did a very extensive analysis. Turns out our analysis was right. Circumstances changed that we couldn't have envisioned, but we understood the risk we took, and that makes it a very good deal. Talk about the Godfather deal. Well, you know, I started Equity Office primarily by starting a distressed uh, property operation at the end of the 80s. It quickly became obvious, to me anyway, that the future of that business was going to be in the office space business because that's where the biggest excesses occurred. And so whereas we started buying up any kind of real estate, we morphed into creating an office company. And we eventually created that company, took it public in 97, was one of the biggest IPOs that was ever done, was phenomenally successful, and we started adding to and building the company. The 2005, 05, company was probably in the $25 to $35 billion range. It was a very large company. And I really thought that we would continue to operate that company In perpetuity. Forever. Sure. I thought it was too big that anybody would ever buy. And um, when somebody actually approached us, in the end of the middle of 07 or 06, I was surprised at the, at the approach. But I also had no trouble dealing with it because every quarter we had analyzed what we thought the company was worth. And uh, so this offer that we had was below what we had thought it was worth. So it was easy to say, thanks, but no thanks, next. And then, so somebody said, well, what would it take? And I said, the only reason we'd ever sell this company was if somebody made us a godfather offer. And obviously Godfather offers one in, the in excess of what you could refuse. And then along came Blackstone and they made an offer. And the offer was significantly higher than our own internal estimates. And it became an easy question. Now there were a lot of people at that time who thought I'd never take an offer. After all, Sam was built this company, it was his right. baby, etc. But that goes right back to what I said before. On the day that you go public, you make a deal with the devil. Up until the day you go public, it's your business and it's yours to do deal and deal with. The day you take in the public's money. Have you ever changed the level of responsibility? Reduciary responsibility to them? And uh, so when the first offer came in and it was a real offer, there's never any question in my mind that we would sell the company because somebody had offered us a number that was a Godfather offer. Had to do it. Had to do it. So you you end your book with
1: a section of 10, 10 not aphorisms, but it's go for greatness. And you talk about five or ten things that really fit that are your, your key comments here. Keep your eyes and mind wide open, the 11th commandment, be the lead dog. Talk about that, and and particularly to our group of younger people here, but any kind of parting wisdom from,
0: from the book and from these comments? Well, I guess I would go back to how you started this interview. You started this interview by... Uh, You know, asking the question of what did you, what did you have to accomplish? What did you start out with? I've always believed in making a difference. I like to laugh and say that I'm a real estate guy, so I'm a long term investor. But that book is all about somebody creating a business with a very long term perspective. I was thinking about what I was going to do in 2010 in 1980. And I obviously was cocky enough to think that I'd be still around (laughs) in 2010, but I still was very focused on that's the direction I was going. And that if I was really going to be successful, I had to take steps along the way that might not produce results for many years to come, but set a standard of how business should be run how a company should be established. Mm-hmm.
1: And and you've talked about a bunch of those, but let's come back to, to one of the comments because it, it's about relationships. It's about uh, how to behave with people. In the book, you, you give an anecdote about someone who said you were about to do a deal with them, and he said, well, congratulations, <laughs> I look forward to doing this deal, but no one's ever done a second deal with me. Who who I'll would never say forget that? that. <laughs> never, I, he was bragging,
0: I just, too. Yeah, he was bragging. I mean, I sat there... And this guy introduced himself and said, hi, and said, I'm happy you're here. And, but I want you to know that no one has ever done a second deal with me. And, of course, because I was cocky, yeah. I said, ah, I'll show him. But you know what? I never, never did with <laughs> <laughs> him.
1: Hey, I want to be respectful of your time, but I have one, one other question. I'm a bicyclist, so on my weekends, I'm on the road. As you are. And as I'm cycling, the motorcycles go by. I've always assumed that the Zell's Angels were Harley riders, and I'm told no. Now, the Harley riders go by me on my bike relatively slow. But then come the Ducati riders, right by me. Yeah, it scares the hell out of me. So what's the difference and what's the pleasure? And just talk a little bit about that well, part of your life.
0: First of all, I don't see any reason why... You should be less scared of a Harley rider than you are <laughs> of a Ducati rider. Their mirrors stick out, so you uh, can get clipped by so them. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that uh, the odds are that the Ducati rider is a much better rider than the Harley rider, and therefore you are safer uh, being passed by a Ducati than <laughs> by a Harley. Um, you know, I tell people that, uh, you know, Harleys are for parading, and Ducati's are for riding. Um, I ride motorcycles as a sport. Um, I go all over the world looking for twisty, turny roads. Uh, The definition of how good a day I had was how little did I ride on a straight road. Uh, To the extent that I don't ride, I just came back from a week in Tuscany, I don't think I rode on a straight road while I was there they for don't a have week. Them. <laughs> and it's fabulous, okay? But, you know, as, as I'm sure you find out when you ride your bicycle, yeah. um, riding alone, um, to me anyway, is the definition of freedom. Yep. And uh, um, every year uh, I'll go spend a week in my helmet and it's awesomely productive for me. And it's healthy for me, and uh, it redefines freedom.
1: I totally agree. I have the same experience while I'm um, my heart racing in a different way than yours is yep. at the same time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I really Thank enjoyed you. this conversation. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast-wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them and add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or Leading Voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at crgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.